Hey everybody, Steve here. Thanks for dropping by. I do my best to stay on top of all the new technologies as they come out, especially those that are wildly different than anything we've already got. One of the newest ones that I'm following pretty closely is something called quantum computing. These are computers that run rings around even the fastest computers we have today, and they're brand new. There are maybe 50 of them total on the planet. Now, you might want to open a can of your favorite adult beverage before you listen to this one, although I promise to keep the physics and the math out of the equation. And yes, that pun was definitely intended. I did my undergraduate work at UC Berkeley. I studied languages, which means that I had to take three years of physics. Welcome to Berkeley. Anyway, we started with Sir Isaac Newton, and we did standard classical physics, and then we stepped into Wonderland, and we met the Mad Hatter, the Jabberwock, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and the Cheshire Cat. That would be Albert Einstein, Werner Heisenberg, yeah, the guy that Walter White in Breaking Bad is named after, Richard Feynman, Erwin Schrodinger, and Niels Bohr. These are the physicists who made my head hurt, not just because the math their work is based on is ridiculously hard, but because their ideas were scientific heresy. They disagreed with Newton, for crying out loud. And while I worked harder in those classes than any other, I learned things about the universe that I would have never thought possible. So let's get back to quantum computers. If you think about a standard digital computer, like the one on your desk, it uses binary mathematics to do what it does. In other words, every bit, and by the way, the word bit comes from a contraction of the two words binary digit. So every bit has two possible values, a zero or a one, which means that it can be on or off. It can show the presence of voltage or the absence of voltage, the presence of light or the absence of light, a high amplitude signal or a low amplitude signal, and so on. The values are discrete which, by the way, is what the word digital means. Basically, a computer is just a bunch of two-position switches, and by setting the switches in specific positions, they can be used to indicate numbers, which can then be manipulated. They're big math machines, and every single thing they do, whether it's to display your email, edit your photographs, store your stuff, or compose this podcast like I'm doing right now, is based on binary math. Now, just remember, the word binary means discrete, Two possible values per bit. That's going to become important a little later. So let me interrupt the flow of the story for just a minute and tell you the story about Schrodinger's cat. To help people understand quantum physics, Schrodinger, who I mentioned earlier, who was one of the early theoretical physicists, wanted people to imagine the following. You put a cat, a glass bottle filled with poison, a Geiger counter, a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of radioactive material, and a hammer all inside a sealed box. Just go with me on this for a minute. Now, the amount of radioactive material that's in there with all that stuff is really, really small, which means that the chances that an atomic particle in that sample will decay and give off a gamma ray, which would then be detected by the Geiger counter, is really, really tiny. Like, maybe once an hour, but then again, maybe not. Statistically, it could go either way. Meanwhile, inside the box, the items are arranged so that if the Geiger counter detects radiation, it will trigger the hammer to fall, the hammer will smash the bottle containing the poison, and the poison will kill the cat. But here's the deal. 
Until somebody opens the box and observes the system, in this case the system is the cat, it's impossible to predict whether the cat is actually alive or dead. There's a 50-50 chance that the cat is either one or the other. Therefore, the cat is in what's called a state of superposition. At any moment in time, until it's directly observed, the cat is both alive and dead. Now, if you can wrap your head around that, then you can understand quantum computing. Quantum computers are cut from very different cloth than their binary cousins. Instead of using discrete two-value bits, they rely on something called a quantum bit, or a qubit for short. So think back to Schrodinger's cat, which is both dead and alive, statistically anyway, at the same time. Similarly, a qubit can be dead, alive, and both dead and alive at the same time. This is superposition, which is what we mentioned a few moments ago. This is also where you might want to reach for that adult beverage. So a single qubit can be a one or a zero or both simultaneously. Two qubits can be superpositioned in four discrete states, three qubits in eight, and so on. And because these qubits can have multiple simultaneous values, they can do multiple simultaneous calculations. Now, another element of quantum physics that make these things work is called entanglement. Basically, two particles are said to be entangled when the quantum state of the two particles cannot be described separately, even when they're very far away from each other, as in on different sides of the galaxy. In other words, the two particles mimic each other, even when they're far apart, and as a result, this concept of entanglement can serve as a massive power amplifier of the quantum computer to which they've been harnessed. So let's go back to Schrodinger's cat for a minute. Since we can't see inside the box, and we don't know whether the radioactive material has decayed, causing the poison gas to be released, we assume that the cat is either alive or dead. But we don't know which. And we won't know until we open the box and look. This is another mystery of quantum physics. The very act of observing the experiment causes a change in the outcome of the experiment. Quantum physics operates based on statistical probability. Remember when they used to draw atoms with the nucleus in the center like the sun and the electrons orbiting around it in fixed paths, kind of like planets in the solar system? Well, that's a nice way to illustrate how an atom works, but it's not realistic. Why? Because statistically, we don't know where each electron is around that nucleus at any point in time. It could be anywhere within its defined orbital, and the orbital is defined by the amount of energy and magnetic attraction that that particular electron has. So we know that it's within a defined orbital. We just don't know exactly where in the orbital it is until we look at it. Well, that's sort of how quantum computers work. Until we actually observe and measure the state of each qubit, we don't know what its value is, which means that each qubit has multiple simultaneous values, each one of which can be put to work, massively expanding the power of the computer. Now, when we observe the state of the quantum gates in the quantum computer, we change that state, causing the quantum state to collapse into a bunch of zeros and ones that can then be interpreted. Now, we're not going to go into the math behind this. You're welcome, by the way. But suffice it to say that it's really complicated. So, how do these things actually work? Well, because of the probabilistic nature of qubits, we have to figure out a way to slow them down so that we can observe what state they're in at any point in time. 
We do that using a device called a dilution refrigerator. It is an amazing steampunk-looking thing. You should go look online for a picture of one. Basically, it's a super-cooled chamber that's filled with liquid helium, and we immerse the qubits in it, which lowers their temperature down to about 10 millikelvins, which is very close to absolute zero, the temperature where all atomic motion stops. That's cold enough that we can take a snapshot of the slowed-down qubit's instantaneous state at any moment in time. Now, to make these things useful, quantum computers scientists write algorithms that take advantage of the superposition nature of the data in quantum computers. And as a result, the outcomes are typically probabilistic in nature as well, meaning that quantum computers don't tend to spit out answers that are deterministic, meaning yes or no. Basically, we know the outcome to be true within a certain defined probability. Now, this works really well for problems that have to do with things like complex search routines or the modeling of very complex environments like weather systems or economic systems or drug interactions or particle physics experiments, troubleshooting in really complicated environments, and so on. To model those kinds of complex systems accurately requires more computing power than we have on the entire planet today, which is why quantum computers show so much promise. But they're still very much in their infancy. IBM has built a 50-qubit machine. Google has one that has 49, and there are a few others out there. Practically speaking, we need machines that have something in the range of 50,000 qubits to solve really big, thorny problems. It'll be a few years before they're widely available, although IBM has three five-qubit machines that anyone, and I mean anyone, can use. If you're interested, let me know, and I'll point you to them. Now, I know your head is about to explode. I know mine was when I first started learning about this stuff. Like I said, I took an awful lot of quantum physics at Cal, and even then, a long time ago, I was impressed and awed by this stuff. I have a lot of resources on it. Reach out to me if you'd like a little more. Now, in the meantime, go have another drink. But hey, you have to admit, this is really amazing stuff, right? Hey, thanks for stopping by. I'll see you in the next episode, and I promise no more physics for a while.